jam-pack everything pretty much to the last minute. So we're going to pray and we're going to get started. Lord willing, tonight. Let's pray. Ivina Malkano, our Father, our King, Lord, we thank you for this time to gather together to study your word. Lord, we thank you for a great ending. We thank you for the great ending that you have written for us in your word. And I pray that each one of us would reach that great ending with you forever as well, Lord. Pray for those who are still on their way, safe travels. Pray you give me uh, wisdom as I teach, and please give us ears to understand what it is you are saying in your word. We pray all these things, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen? All right, well, I thought briefly, only briefly, about continuing in Revelation 20 and talking more about the end of the chapter with the eternality of the lake of fire and eternal punishment and things like that. And while that is an interesting subject, I figured we could use something a little bit more pleasant to talk about. And so we're going to be moving on from the lake of fire in Revelation 20 to Revelation 21, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And I've entitled my study for tonight, The Best Ending. Um, And I'm going to give you, in my introduction, I give you the reason why for that. So, This probably won't shock you, but I'm a bit of a nerd, okay? Um, Rabbi Lauren, I think a few weeks ago, playfully referred to me as Shema's chief nerd rabbi. And so as a nerdy kind of guy, I love a lot of things, but I also love a good video game. And some of the best video games have stories with multiple endings, right? You see this sometimes in books as well, where you can have a multiple ending to the same story. And usually when they do this sort of thing, you have at least one bad ending, where things end very badly for the the people involved. And usually there's a good ending, which is the one you want. And so in Scripture, you know, when we look at the Revelation, right, the final book of God's Word, and we get towards the end, and really all of Scripture has been right leading up to these moments we've been reading about here in Revelation 19, 20, now in 21 and 22, We're getting here to the end. Revelation 20 really ends with that bad ending, the ending you don't want, which is eternal punishment, the lake of fire, this sort of thing. With unbelieving humanity. But in Revelation 21, we have now reached really the end, what's really going to be the end of this letter. We have 21 and 22 We have a proper epilogue, sort of, at the very end of 22. But Revelation 21 and 22 doesn't just contain a good ending, like a really great end to the story, but it's really the best ending. It's the best ending you could possibly hope for. You know, the Millennium Kingdom, which is amazing and wonderful and is described for us in great detail, right, in Revelation 20 in Fulfillment of Prophecy, that's a really great ending. Okay, if things were just there, right, with Messiah Yeshua forever, you know, in Jerusalem, that's pretty amazing with the resurrection. But God has something even better in store for us after that thousand years. And that's why it really is the best ending. It's the best ending by the best writer, God, of the best book ever created, the Bible. And that's really how I think we should really think about these last two chapters, is 
the way God has chosen to end not just this letter, but his entire word to us, and really right as this is the story of humanity. And as we see, this ending isn't really even a true ending, but really a new beginning, which is even more wonderful. So we're going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 21. And we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So I've been hitting this over and over again. This is the seventh, I think, in the series here. But then I saw, right, that phrase, and I saw, sometimes with in this case because it's chronological, it's put as then I saw, shows that we have another transition in the narrative of what John is seeing. So he sees an extraordinary sight with a new heaven and a new earth. This fulfills the prophecies of Isaiah in Isaiah 65, 17 and 66, 22. And these prophecies of a new heaven and a new earth are also discussed in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13. I have this here from the ESV. Let's read this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We've been talking about, you know, you can see how these obviously relate to the events we've been reading about in Revelation. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Powerful passage from Second Peter here. And you see how it harmonizes with this text. Now, this passage does seem to indicate that the old heaven and earth will have a final destructive end. But it may also be a type of intense renewal, right? The Bible is only a scientific textbook where it talks about science. The process of how does this earth get destroyed or renewed and how does this new one appear, the Bible does not say. It simply tells us God wants this thing to happen, the earth and the heavens to pass away, and thus they do, and there is a new heavens and a new earth. Is it like the original creation in Genesis? Probably not. But in some supernatural way, our creator is going to create a new heavens and a new earth for us. Now what's interesting here, you might be saying, okay, so you got the heavens and the earth, right? That makes sense. But what about the sea? Why is the sea being called out here? You know, if you remember, the sea was also being called out a bit when we were looking at the passages about Babylon, right, in our study. Well, this again could be a reference to the sea as being connected to death, but also to ancient evil. You see this in Daniel 7, that evil things just arise from the sea. If so, then this is just another signal that this new creation is without evil. Or sin. And it's also interesting to note that there is no mention or of oceans or seas 
in this new creation. You know, it talks about rivers, right? But there's no discussion of seas or oceans in the rest of Revelation 21 or 22. So it may be on the new heavens and new earth, there is no more, literally no more seas, no more oceans. Again, we're not told about the topography, the geology of these sorts of things. It's not the focus of what's going on here at the end of the letter. But it's worth just discussing and pointing out. The new heavens and earth signify a reversal of how creation has been since the sins of Adam and Eve. There's a lot of parallels in these last two chapters of Revelation and what's going on in, like, especially the first and second chapters of Genesis. Um, there's differences as well, and those are important as well. But we really should see the new heavens and new earth. This is a restoration to, and it's even better than how creation should have been with Adam and Eve. It's even better than what Adam and Eve had in the garden, right? It's this renewal of all things, but we have an even greater fellowship with God in the new heavens and the new earth as we're going to go on and see than even Adam and Eve did. Creation will now finally be perfect and remain perfect forever. And that's another key point in these chapters. Is there's no more, and then Satan comes popping back out of the lake of fire, right? There's no sequels to this ending, to this story where, you know, God will have to fight Satan again or something terrible is going to come down the road. No, it's over. It's really over. It really is joy and peace and sinlessness forever. You know, as human beings, I think that's something that we really, not just the idea of eternity, obviously, which is way too big for us to wrap our minds around, but the idea that it really will be joy forever. I feel like, at least for me as a person, particularly in these last few years of my life, I, um, I tend to be the type of person who's, when things are going good, I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. I just, I have that personality type, right, you know? Um, and I'm just waiting for that next thing to happen. Um, and But what we have here in Scripture is things are amazing and continue to be amazing forever. There is no shoe that's going to drop. There is no change to this because God has decreed it to be so. And again, nothing could go against what God wills. So, Creation will now be perfect, and once creation has been properly prepared, this is meant to be sequential, then can come the new Jerusalem. So creation is prepared, it's renewed, whether it's destroyed or just reinvigorated in some way, in, in some way it's created anew, it's prepared perfectly, and now that it's, the stage has been set, the new Jerusalem can come. Any questions on verse 1 before we move on? If you have questions online, I'll try my best to uh, track with them and get to them. Yeah, Marianne, what's up? So, so Marianne's asking, you know, Rabbi Glenn, she said, mentioned the seas could also represent that which is unknown. So the idea of the seas being swallowed up or destroyed is that which is unknown is now unveiled. It's possible. Um, it's definitely possible. It could also be that there is multiple meanings to this as well, because the sea does represent 
several different things. Um, so, yeah. A good question. All right, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the use of and I saw so soon is unusual. You know, we said then I saw, but now he says and I saw this. It's unusual to see these so close together, and it's to draw our attention to what John is seeing. And it may be here for emphasis. And there seems to be a distinction between the new heavens and the earth and the new Jerusalem. So some scholars see this once again as a symbolic city representing the universal church. So a lot of people don't believe the new Jerusalem here is literal. They didn't believe the millennium Jerusalem was literal. They didn't believe the temple during the tribulation was literal. So you see this continue to go through. Now, while obviously I have defended at length a literal reading of these symbols in previous chapters, I'm just going to take a moment to defend an actual New Jerusalem in this verse. So notice first within this verse itself, we have New Jerusalem described as the holy city. This is a title used to refer to the literal earthly Jerusalem. You can see I have some references here for you to look that up. It would be strange to suddenly apply this to something that is not a city. And second, this idea of a literal new Jerusalem from which God dwells and rules connects with many Old Testament prophecies. Two that are worth mentioning are found in Ezekiel 37 and Ezekiel 40. The first is connected to Revelation 21.3, and the second is a reference to 21.12-13. Both of these Old Testament passages also envision a literal city, and so it should be understood the same here in Revelation. And finally, Scripture does refer to a new Jerusalem existing in heaven with God's temple and descending in Revelation 3.12. This temple in heaven with God's throne has been described as literally existing throughout Revelation and now descends to be part of the earth with the barrier between heaven and earth removed. And this is the key idea here, right? Is throughout Revelation, right, we've we've been going between the earth and heaven, right? Certain things happen in heaven, then they happen on earth, then we go back to heaven, then the earth again, right? And the focus in heaven has always been on what? The throne of God, right? The throne, right? The voice of the angels crying out from the throne. God's voice coming from the throne, right? The the assembly of all the different angels that we saw early on in Revelation. That's been one of the centerpieces of Revelation is God as sovereign king ruling on his throne, making all these events happen the way he wants to, correct? So what we have here with the descending of the new Jerusalem is God's throne is coming down in this new Jerusalem to earth. And the barrier between the heavens and the earth, not just, we're not talking about just the sky and stars here, but the realm of the angels and the spiritual and where God dwells right now and this earth, that barrier is being removed. Okay? 
And that's why it's even greater. That's why I say this is an even greater dwelling or fellowship than Adam and Eve had. Because in the time of Adam and Eve, right, the heaven was still heaven, and God's throne was up there. He came down to his garden and walked in the cool of the day and interacted presumably with Adam and Eve, right? But there was still that barrier, right? That division, I should say, even more so. But that division is removed. So the city is also described as a bride, which represents the nature of the physical city itself and the disciples who will be a part of it forever. Now, we could do a whole study on the idea of the bridal image of of Messiah and his community of called out ones and all those beautiful passages right in God's word. But on a very basic level, this bridal image is one of closeness between human beings and our creator, right? The idea of, of a man and a woman coming together in marriage, they're getting very close, right? There is a level of connection there between them that they shouldn't be having with other people, right? It becomes its own new unit. This idea of the new Jerusalem and God and believers being joined to Messiah Yeshua is that we are getting very close to God in a very personal way, in a way that we've never experienced before, beyond our comprehension. This closeness goes beyond even in Adam and Eve, and like a wedding... Right, This will be a time of joy and celebration. But unlike any other wedding, this is a party that goes on forever. You know, even the greatest of weddings, you know, there's certain cultures where people, you know, we, we, we see this in, in the Gospels, right, where weddings can go on for a week or even two weeks at a time. You could maybe, if you had enough money and stuff, right, you could keep your wedding going for maybe months or even years. But eventually, the party has to end. Eventually, the wedding's over, and you go back to normal life. You know, you may have a honeymoon. The honeymoon's only for a period of time. But what we're being described in these passages and elsewhere, right, in fulfillment of all these prophecies we've talked about as we led up to Revelation, we've been working our way through Revelation, this is a time of joy that goes on forever. The best ending. Questions? All right, we'll keep on trucking along. Verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now this loud voice is most likely an angel of high standing, proclaiming God's will. We've seen this elsewhere in Revelation. This angel announces that any barriers between God dwelling with his creation have now been destroyed. They've been taken down. The sense here in the Greek is that the The Shekinah, the presence of the Lord, will now fully be with his people forever. In fulfillment of the Feast of Sukkot, God will forever dwell with his people. We could do a whole study on that right now, okay? We could spend a whole hour just on that. Um, It's a powerful, 
powerful couple of verses here. Verse 3 is a fulfillment of many Old Testament passages, such as Jeremiah 31-33, Ezekiel 37-27, Zechariah 2-11. You know, I know Rabbi Glenn talks about this sometimes, about passages you should know in the Word of God. These are three important verses you should know relating to God dwelling among his people. These passages speak of a future day when the Lord will be with his people forever. Now, most English translations have the singular word people, right? It's one group of people for verse 3. Now, while many Greek manuscripts support this translation, the evidence most likely leans towards the plural, that this really should be peoples. They will, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them as their God. The takeaway is that for all eternity, all the diverse nations and people that make up Messiah's community will be united forever with our Messiah. Jews and Gentiles, people called from different nations, right? Men and women from all these disparate different cultures, time periods, walks of life, those who were rich in life and poor in life, those who were well-respected and those who weren't, right? All the great patriarchs of God's word, Moses, Abraham, all the unnamed people in scripture that we read stories and things about, like the Samaritan woman who is not named, we will dwell with them forever. This diverse, amazing group of witnesses, of believers, of overcomers from all these different nations, all these different peoples will be joined together with one another and with God forever, dwelling with him united because of our shared faith. It's a beautiful picture. And this was the way things were always meant to be, and now creation and humanity have been renewed to experience this joy forever. Well, what is this joy like? What does it mean that God is now dwelling among us? We find part of the answer in verse 4 that we read. The Lord will personally wipe away our tears. Everything that brings us sadness will no longer exist. This includes sorrows like death and pain, two sorrows we all have. You know, life in this world is not very easy, is a probably huge understatement, okay? We all struggle in many different ways in times of greater and less intensity depending on the season of our lives. But something that all of humanity struggles with is death and pain. There is nobody in this world, no matter how much money you have, how much power you have, right? You are going to have suffering related at some point in your life, a lot of points in your life, from death and from pain. And here we have a promise from God that he will wipe these tears away, that these things are going to fade away because they are connected with an earth and a heaven that has faded away as well. The phrase, right, that he'll wipe away our tears is from Isaiah 25.8, which describes the Lord wiping away sorrow from Israel. This verse was also quoted in Revelation 7.17 with the Lord promising to do this for those who are martyred. So it's promised elsewhere in Revelation. 
that all these terrible things will fade away. Now, Rabbi Glenn, I know when he usually teaches on this, he, he, I, he does, he's not dogmatic about this, but he says, you know, we, sometimes people will ask him, well, what about people we knew in this life who aren't in heaven with us? You know, how could I be in heaven and enjoy bliss with God forever if, you know, my grandma, grandma, somebody who I really love just isn't there? And so I know Rabbi Glenn, if I'm misquoting you, Rabbi Glenn, if he's listening, he'll, he'll definitely tell me. But if he's reading this in post, he'll say something too. Um, but he would say that a possible interpretation, one, is that in some way those memories are removed of those people. So that may be what is also in view here, but we can't be dogmatic about it. In some, so when people ask me, though, I just say, you know, in some supernatural way, we will be able to enjoy God and our brothers and sisters forever. And I have trust and hope in that because, you know, we might ask questions about that, but none of us ask questions, well, how does God recreate the heavens and the earth? You know, how does he do that, right? We have trust that God can do it. If God can create a new heavens and a new earth and bring down a new Jerusalem from heaven and accomplish all these wonderful things we've read about in Revelation, I think he can handle making things amazing for us forever. I think that's a, that's a small order of business for God. So that's just where we have to trust in God. But it's an amazing promise, these things. Any questions before we move on? All right. Verses 5 and 6. We're going to go to verse 8, Lord willing, tonight. And he was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So before we had an angel speaking, now God speaks. Because he is definitely the one who is seated on the throne. Again, the focus of God on his throne, his sovereignty, his kingship, his power, his majesty. And so he says three separate statements. And it's structured this way to, again, make sure we're paying attention to each and every one of these three statements. So first, we have a stern command of promise from our creator. He says, behold, which means really... Pay attention. Listen. He is making everything new. Drawing from and expanding Isaiah 43, 19, the Lord tells us we can be sure this renewal will take place. And so he commands John to write this down because it will happen. Right, obviously John's, you know, is running, is going to be running everything down, right, that God tells him to write down. So why does God say specifically, John, make sure you write this down? Why? Because he wants to emphasize to us, the reader, this will happen. Because of how extraordinary it is, right? You know, this is, you know, God understands how we are. This is something beyond our comprehension. You know, we can envision you know, fire coming down from heaven and people dying and beasts rising up and terrible tragedies. We're used to terrible tragedies. When you say there's going to be a worldwide earthquake, earthquake, 
You say, that's terrible, but we've experienced, you may have experienced earthquakes, so you can begin to conceptualize what a worldwide earthquake might be sort of kind of like, right? Because we're well acquainted with different types of suffering in this world. We have lots of historical records of suffering. But we're not as acquainted with joy. The idea of, of these things passing away, of never experiencing pain again, or death, how do, we, how do we wrap our minds around that? It seems impossible. It seems too extraordinary. And so what does God say? God says, behold, I am doing this. John, write this down because it is absolutely true. And then he says, not only am I doing this, I have made all things new, but from the perspective of heaven, it is done. For us, we haven't experienced yet, but God exists in eternity. This has already happened. Time. It's very wibbly, wobbly. You know, it's a Doctor Who thing, but, you know, it's very messy, right? We're locked in time. God is not. So he commands John to write it down because it will happen. You know, unlike the happy endings you see in so many movies, books, those video games I referenced, this ending will happen, and it will truly be happy. This isn't a Disney happy ending, right? Or a fictional happy ending, okay? It's a real one. This is why it's the best ending. Because we can be sure it will come to pass like everything else that is part of our sovereign king's will, right? If he has orchestrated everything we've seen in human history up until this point, and he has, and if Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was according to his will, it was. And if everything God has ever promised, both for blessing and for cursing, has happened, just as he said it has throughout all of human history, as is written in his word, and it has. And if these events in Revelation will come to take place exactly the way God wants them to take place at the time he wants it to take place, and nobody, let alone Satan, can stop it from taking place, and it will, then we can be assured that this ending will happen. Right? If he's been trustworthy and sovereign up until this point, he will be trustworthy and sovereign at the end. So while these events will take place in our future, from the eternal viewpoint of heaven, they have already happened. This is why the Lord says it is done. The Lord identifies himself as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. We saw these titles right back in Revelation 1, and they refer to a couple of things. First, they refer to his eternality. Right? God is eternal. We are not. We will be living forever, but we had a created moment. God did not. But they also refer to the fact that he is the king of all creation, not just sometimes or when it's convenient for us, but all time, right? He has been king forever and ever and will continue to be king forever and ever. He's the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Every event in this letter in the Bible itself, and all of creation has been moving to this ending. One of the great themes of Revelation is how the Lord is the one king we need to follow and to listen to, right? 
You know, we go back to the letters to the seven churches, to the seven ecclesias, called out ones. You know, Messiah writing to them says, you know, listen, you're scared of Caesar. You're scared of people. He says, listen, you know who you should be in fear of? Me. Righteous respect. Don't be afraid of those who could just take your life in this world. They only have a limited level of control over you. I have a lot more control. And I have more amazing rewards and punishments than they could dish out. So that's, again, calling back to these themes. And here in these verses, we again see why. Those who follow the king of kings are promised an amazing reward in verse 6. We are promised to freely drink from the waters of life. Now, this is the same living waters of John 4.10. If you were with us last week um, at Shema, when we were doing our discussion of John, we talked about this, which we experience spiritually now and will experience in a greater way in eternity. Those who thirst for God, the overcomers, right, the conquerors, depending on your translation, and his true disciples will drink and be satisfied, right? But you have to be somebody who thirsts for those waters, who desires God, right? It's part of the transformation of being a true disciple, right? This has been the one of the big themes, again, in Revelation, right, is some thirst for God, chase after God, overcome, and receive the rewards that God has promised. And others abandon God, reject God, get scared and run away from God, and they run towards Satan, the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophets, Babylon, and they share in their reward, the lake of fire. Those who desire these waters will be freely given them, but it's promised only to those who are part of God's community. Questions? Marianne? Right? Yeah, it will be, it has been, it is. It, this, you know, again, these things have been decided before the foundation of the world. God knew the end of the story before it even began because he's not locked in time. And nobody could stop him. We saw Satan try many times to stop him. And he tries one last time, right, in the previous chapter. And he gets smacked out, not even by God, but by an angel. An angel empowered by God. Okay? You know, let alone God himself. God doesn't even need to get his hands dirty for this. That's how much he is above Satan, who has quite a bit of power. Right? We shouldn't, you know, just be laissez you know, like very casual about Satan. Okay? Satan has a lot of power. He's given a lot of authority for a limited amount of time in this world. Okay? You know, God is way above Satan. We're not. Okay? Any power we have, anything we, we do is because God empowers us. Same thing with the angels. But the point being that God is in complete control. And we can trust in that. Moving on. Verses 7 and 8. Our final two verses for tonight. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, 
idolaters, and all liars, their portion, their inheritance really here, right, will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This wonderful promise of living waters and dwelling with the Lord forever is only for the overcomers. Who are the overcomers? Those who remain faithful witnesses to the end will experience these promises just as we were told in Revelation 2 and 3. Only the overcomers will inherit these promises. This is the result of being adopted into God's kingdom, into God's family, right? We talk about adoption. That adoption, that being brought in as sons and daughters of God, right? We've, we've talked about this before. I know I've hit this before. I'm going to hit it again, right? We're all made in the image of God. But we are in this world, not all of us are children of God. Those who are the overcomers, those who are believers, true disciples of God, those are the ones who are children of God. God's word tells us that if you're not his child, you're a child of Satan and of darkness. So you are somebody's child, but you, there's only two families you can belong to, like the rest of God's word. Either you're a child of Satan or you're a child of God. And praise be to God that while we were still sinners, he saved us. And we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We've been adopted into God's family. That's why we are brothers and sisters, because we share the same father. If we are his children. So we experience only a small portion of this adoption, of this grace, of this blessing, of this living waters, of this dwelling in this life. Just a taste, a sliver. And we groan to fully experience it forever. It's put so beautifully in Romans 8.23, also in 2 Corinthians. And so we groan, longing to experience the fullness of that adoption. But in eternity, we will fully experience the joy of being God's children. You know, as was the old uh, Frank Sinatra song, right? The best is yet to come. You know, everything, the best moments you've had with God in this life, the moments you've been closest to God and, and felt his spirit, whether it's been a time of, of suffering or great joy, whatever those moments are that you treasure in your heart, that is just a sliver, a tiny glimpse of the joy that awaits us in the new Jerusalem. It pales in comparison to what's to come. Hence why we grow. But the Lord reminds us that many will not experience this wonderful covenant blessing, being in covenant, in relationship with him. The entire list of people in verse 8 is described elsewhere in Revelation. You can go to all the liars, the idolaters, right? The slanderers, the sexually immoral. We've seen all these people show up and been condemned throughout Revelation. It's a list of the who's who of all the people that have been thrown into the lake of fire. And we see lots of different examples of them. But there's one exception that's sort of added to this list. The cowardly, the one at the first. So notice the cowardly is distinguished between the faithless or the unbeliever. Well, who are the cowardly? The cowardly are probably meant to be contrasted with the faithful witnesses who overcome. So on the one hand, you have the overcomers, 
And on the other hand, you have the cowardly. So the cowardly are those who, in the face of persecution or for other reasons, abandon the Lord. So they started walking with God. We can again go into the parables, right? The, the seed being scattered on different land, right? But these are people who begin to walk with God and who, for whatever reason, walk away from him. They do not maintain their witness to the end. Such people, First John tells us, were never really saved to begin with. And the emphasis here is that it is not how we start with the Lord, thank God, but how we end. Being a faithful witness to the end, which again has been this recurring beautiful theme throughout all of Revelation, right? Is being that faithful witness. So we want to make sure we are part of the overcomers. Fortunately, God does not expect us to overcome by our own power. And I'm repeating a lot of what we talked about back in Revelation 2 and 3, but it's worth mentioning here, right? We overcome through the Holy Spirit, through the living waters God pours out to us in this life, right? That's how we overcome. But again, you're either sharing in this portion, this inheritance, of joy and peace and sorrow gone forever, or you're sharing in a different type of inheritance. There's only two things you're going to inherit. Again, there's only two groups. Any questions before I get into my summary, a little application, if I haven't hit that hard enough yet? (laughs) All right. Revelation 21 begins with the ending for all those who overcome and are faithful witnesses of Messiah Yeshua. We will be invited to live with him forever in the new Jerusalem and a new heaven and earth. The divisions between heaven and earth will be removed and the Lord will dwell with us forever. We will experience joy without ceasing forever and ever and ever. These promises are trustworthy and we can be sure it will happen just like everything else in Revelation and God's word. As we read these words today, we must remember that this is the promise realized for those who maintain until the end their faith in Messiah Yeshua. We will experience life forever with God without any sorrow, pain, or anything else negative. This is something that defies our human comprehension, but we can be sure it is as true as every other promise. We are meant to hold on to these promises today by doing the work our King calls us to do. We look forward to these things while living in this world. And this is the tension, right? This Rabbi Paul, again, beautifully talks about this, right? We long to be in heaven. We long to be in our heavenly bodies, right? You know, we get to the end of Revelation. I know you, Lord willing, you've read it before, right? It ends with what? Come, Lord Yeshua, come, right? Return, God, please, now, soon, right? We want these things to happen, right? Not about vindicating us but we want to experience that millennium, that new Jerusalem, right? We want it now. And so we long for these things while doing the work God calls us to do right now. The world we live in also makes many promises to us, like Satan in the wilderness with Messiah Yeshua. The world promises us things it cannot deliver, right? When when Satan tempted Yeshua, he promised him all these things, right? If he would bow down and worship him. I give you all the kingdoms of the world, everything you can see. It wasn't Satan's right to give that to him. 
He didn't have the power to truly give that to him, even if he were to do so. He was lying, which again, he's Satan. You kind of expect it, right? It goes with the names. So the world does the same thing. It promises us things it cannot deliver. The world tells us if we just follow the right mindset, buy the right things, and think the right way, we can fix ourselves and be happy. I've just distilled down every form of self-help, new age spiritualism, TikTok mindfulness trend in the, in the entire world. It's like some amalgamation of that, right? Do these things that we tell you, and suddenly everything will just get better. We can enjoy comfort and joy right now if we just listen to one of the many voices in our world today. But the happiness promised by the world is fleeting at best and always empty. It is a conditional joy that runs out so very quickly. And for many, it's like an addiction. It's like a drug, right? You you take whatever drug it is, you experience the pleasant effects maybe, but then it fades and the crash is worse than the high. That's why people have seek out the drugs again, right? Whatever drug you're talking about that somebody's addicted to. This could be things like heroin. It could be things like cocaine. It could be things like gambling. It could be all sorts of other things that we get addicted to. We're looking for our next fix, and it never satisfies. That's what the world wants us to be like. They want us, the world, Satan wants us to be addicts, in a sense, Right? looking for that next thing. Maybe this new thing I buy will make me feel better or make me feel like I'm keeping up with people. You know, that's like a lot of marketing, you know. Not to get on a huge soapbox, but I, I read too many news articles on those Stanley Cups, which, I, you know, it's its own thing, right? They're nice cups, but, like, people are literally, like, attacking people in targets for pink cups. Like, chill out, man. They're just cups, right? But no, they're not just cups because... Other people say, if I give this cup, I'm going to feel good. Like That's the promise behind it. You say, so, well, do you think this cup's really going to change your life? No, but I still want it. Are you willing to pay like 16 times the price for it? Sure. Are you willing to steal it? Sure. Are you willing to like attack somebody's grandma to get it from them if it's the last one on the shelf? Absolutely. Grandma's going down. I'm getting that cup. Right? This is Black Friday, right? Every time for those deals, right, people get killed, swarmed. It's terrible. That's the world we live in. Much of life today is designed to distract or comfort us with the sorrow and death we face, right? I can get my Stanley Cup and not think about the fact that I'm going to die for a little while. A little, little morbid, a little extreme, but that's, when you really drill down into it, there's, there's a sense of that there. The world provides no concrete solution to this suffering, just platitudes or diversions. It doesn't actually fix us. The joy promised by the Lord in this chapter is a joy that will never end, and most importantly, can never be taken away. It is a joy we do not earn, but experience by grace because of what he has done for us. We must be sure that we are moving towards this best ending and not exchanging temporary comfort for eternal paradise. So Messiah said, where do you store your treasures, on earth or in heaven? The Lord wants us to know his words are trustworthy and true. We must therefore be sure to listen and to obey them. That's the end of it. Any final questions, comments, concerns about Stanley Cups?
I keep getting so many articles about it. That's why it just pops in my mind. Like, I don't know why my Google feed just says, you want to know about Stanley Cups, don't you, Jerry? Like, no, I don't, Google. Leave me alone. Yes, Marianne. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think there's, there's definitely a sense there. Yeah, with the Chinese, with their understanding culture and attachment. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, other cultures, this is the thing, you know, the Bible is true capital T. Other cultures, other religions, other philosophies may have some level of truth, lowercase t, but they don't have the complete truth. You know, was it, Buddhism says that life is suffering. It's like one of the noble truths of it. It's true. Life is suffering. Well, we're, you know, but it goes beyond all these things and, and things as well. But these, these can be touch points in as we relate to other cultures and other people and show them, you know, here's your understanding of things. Let me show you where it overlaps with what I believe. But let me show you what the Bible also says about these things that might be a little different than what you've heard. Yeah, but it, it, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? All right, well, Lord willing, Rabbi Glenn will be with you guys next week and maybe covering some of this again, but picking up, Lord willing, in chapter 21. Just a couple small housekeeping things. Uh, if you are somebody who uh, has, is a regular attender of either the Bible study or on Saturday mornings, uh, who was given to Shema in the last year, we have probably in back uh, on next Saturday, we'll have your uh, end of your receipt letter. Please, 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 if you're here Saturday, uh, pick it up so we don't have to waste the postage sending it to you. I think stamps are like, what, 65 cents now or something like that? It's more and more. It adds up, okay? We, we want to be good stewards. So please make sure you pick up your end of giving letter. Um, we've also moved our giving platform over to Church Track. If you're having any issues with that, I'm the guy to talk to so you know where to find me. Or you can email or call us uh, on the website and we'll help you out with that. Um, and then please join us this Saturday. We'll be continuing, Lord willing, in the Gospel of John, me and the other. Uh, two rabbis, Rabbi Lauren, Rabbi Glenn, uh, will be continuing in John chapter 4, and uh, it should be a very good discussion. Especially John chapter 4 is just so rich on, on how Messiah evangelizes. It's just, it's, it's just a beautiful chapter of God's Word. All right, with all that in mind, let's pray, and we'll be dismissed for tonight. Avinu Mokino, our Father, King, Lord, thank you that you are faithful to every promise you have ever made. We thank you that we know how things will end. And that this ending is the reason why the revelation is an encouragement for us as we see these days coming near. That we look forward with great anticipation to dwelling with you forever and ever. I pray that each one of us would have the inner witness that we're saved and we would be bold evangelists telling people about the good news. Not just good news for this life, Lord, but the good news for the life to come dwelling with you forever. I pray all these things, Hashem, Yeshua. Amen? All right, thank you guys so much. And thank you guys online as well.